You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show. It's fantastic to be here on a Tuesday and today is the 18th of October and I'm here with... Asalaamu Alaikum Warahmatullahi Wabarakatuh. Hanif Sabs, how are you today? Uh, I'm, I'm fantastic. So for the viewers Saad. who are always with me on Tuesdays, yeah. my name is Saad and yeah. I'm coming on on drive time show for tuesdays great it's excellent to be here with you son exactly I, 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 I knew your name i just wanted you to come in straight away <laughs> that's all that's fine uh, but yeah look Saad, we've got two fantastic topics today that we're talking about and also we're asking a question on our instagram as well in relation to one of the topics that we're covering today so as I introduce both of these two topics, uh, you should be able to get in touch with us on the normal way, you know, on, on 0208687778 on the phone. Or you can uh, listen to us as well. If you're not able to uh, listen to us on DAB radio, you can listen to us on the website, which is voiceofislam.co.uk. And also you can get in touch with us through the normal social um, platforms as well on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, you name them. And the handle is always Voice of Islam UK. So the two topics that we're going to be talking about today with you is this really interesting topic that me and Saad were talking about before the show is this liberation psychology. And we're going to spend um, some extra time on this topic, uh, not the usual hour. We're going to do yeah. an hour and a half on this because this liberation psychology is about tackling mental health crisis but with a different spin and we're going to be talking to an author who's written a lot about this subject as well we'll get into a lot more detail but in the first part of the show so we're going to be talking about adoption aren't we yes and um our listeners might note that the islamic perspective on adoption is very slightly different to what has been the practice since the law of the adoption came into place in the early 1900s. Um, and But Islam has always had this viewpoint, and I'll let Saad explain to it in a lot more detail as we go, get into this subject. So they're the two subjects, and also we're asking you a question on Instagram saying that, you know, if you had the option and you could do it, would you adopt? And it's a simple yes or no, and we'll send the results to you on that question that we're asking as well. So why don't we just get into this subject straight away, Saad? And there is this wonderful verse of the Holy Quran that kind of is perfect for our introduction. It's chapter 2, verse 221, and it says that if they ask thee concerning the orphans, say, promotion of their welfare is an act of great goodness. There is no harm in your living together with them, for they are your brethren, and Allah will know him who seeks to promote their welfare, and also him who seeks to do them harm. So, Sir, that's a really good opening 
verse I've read out there. Can you just dwell on that a little bit more and then explain to our listeners you know, w- what's the inference there? So, assalamualaikum to the viewers. So, listeners. adoption as a broad subject, yeah. right, Hanif, it's a very different, a slight difference with Islam and uh, with the law of UK. Here, what Allah is mentioning is He, yeah. uh, Allah says, for they are your brethren. He didn't say they are your sons or daughters. He says they are your brethren, meaning they are your brothers in um, religion. So that is straight away a separation that they you can't call them as your son or daughters. Mm. And that's the main uh, what's called um, separation Islam does here. Because if you do this, uh, if, you, if they become your bro- um, sons and daughters, then there are other issues which erase with it. Cause, because they are from someone else's lineage, mm. simple as that. And they have a, a different blood going through them, and the what's called the r- rules and regulations apply to them as they are a non-mehrum, which means they are not one from among you, in simple words. Hmm. Oh, it's very clear, and I really like the way you explain that as well. Um, and therefore, there is something else as well, which we will cover later. Um, but I, I wanted to just raise this now because you made a very valid point there. It's about the name of the surname of someone you adopt as well indeed in islam you are encouraged not to give your own family name to the adopted child right yes that's correct that's because they should know where who they belong to and they should know where they came from mm. adoption is it's a beautiful thing yeah and helping um what's called helping the orphanage pe- um, kids as such that islam promotes it 100, 200% let's say yeah. but there are some obviously some rules and regulations also which have to apply to make it work in society if, if let's say if I'm adopted if, I, if I'm adopted and my adoptees uh, are my parents now hmm. that's, a, that's a different it's a weird cir- circulation there and if my real parents come up there what's happening oh who are they what's happening and it's just, that's, it creates a massive confusion there hmm. and you have to tell them also Okay, yes, you belong to such and such person mm. to make sure that they know where they're coming from. Yeah. So when they go for a marriage, they're actually marrying someone um, which they are blood-bound um, as uh, their brothers and sisters Yeah. yeah. So to, to clear away those confusions also. Yeah, so, so that, that kind of sets the scene and it's good for people to understand uh, the Islamic perspective. And also when you, when you take those two points in consideration you know choosing to adopt a child in care is likely to be one of the most challenging but actually the most rewarding decision that you can ever make and i guess it's similar with having children as well the amount of potential stress that you can be caused by them but actually at the same time they bring you so much joy and love it's a very similar comparison so you know when people raise raise up this allegation or why can't you give them your name Mm. that's a small aspect there if you look at the broader picture you're adopting someone you're reforming them you're reforming their life you're reforming their future generations at the same time these are great examples out there that making a person who has no one around him making him belong to someone also okay and you teach them you educate them mm. and they educate their um, future generations also and that's um, it's basically helping to function society here and it makes a the world work simpler 
Brilliant. I mean, I, I love the way that you're explaining this. Uh, so if I just give some statistics as well. So over the last past 10 years, England has seen 40,920 adoptions and, and the UK has around 3,000 children who are waiting to be adopted. And these children are of a different ethnic and religious background, with some having disabilities or even having special needs. So sometimes these children are even harder to adopt. I mean, yes. there are so many criteria that people look for, but obviously if they fall through the net, someone else has to look after them. And that's where the local authority of different areas across the country then take over that responsibility. They become the parents in a way and they look after all of their welfare, their education and uh, keep them in accommodation up until they either come to maturity or they finish education. Very similar uh, to um, them fostering them in a way because when you adopt... It's adoption for life. There is no going back. So it's a very different situation there. So what, but what they do all have in common, and you kind of explained this um, really well as well, is that when they're taken into care, they'll have, would have suffered some sort of degree of loss or separation. And if they're adopted shortly after birth, then they don't feel so bad but when they get older they realize that actually I was adopted so who was my um, birth parent so this is why you mentioned earlier at the beginning it was quite important to be able to have that separation so they go up with a clear clear conscience mind so what we do we get into more detail and talk a lot about uh, what is the adoption and and then how what are parental rights and how should the adoptive feel but what we're going to do first is talk to our first guest who is waiting in the wings and it's great to be able to speak to Madeline Ryan Smith who is a, a social scientist political activist and also a candidate for the GA House District for 158. So, uh, Madeline, welcome to the Drive Time Show, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excellent. Um, so do you think that uh, relationships are built with only your blood relatives? Sorry, I went straight into there with a question, but... Um... Yeah, yeah, and, and actually I am adopted, yeah. and so... I know that relationships don't have to be with your blood relatives because all of my relationships in my life are with people who are not blood related to me. Um, I had the privilege of growing up with a half brother. Um, we have, you know, the same mother but different fathers, and we were adopted very shortly after birth, but together. Mm -hmm. So we grew up together in the same household, um, and he's my only blood relative I have. Um, but when you're adopted, that that soon after birth, blood and adoptive families, it. It, those are just words to me. Yeah. You know, my mom and dad are the people who adopted me. Yeah. I mean, there were never any sort of strained relationships where things became really difficult between the biological and the adoptive children because sometimes you you get that impression and sometimes when you watch movies and TV shows, but it is that isn't the true reflection, is it? No, I don't believe so. And, yeah. and of course, you know, you can't generalize with populations. So there is going to be some possibility of if a child is adopted, let's say after the age of 10, they've come out of foster care and they're going into uh, a family household where there's biological children. There is a possibility that there would be some difficulty there. But again, every family is different. And so, you know, I would say that the majority of kids who are mm. adopted into, into loving families are are adopted truly into loving families and are are welcome and are part of the family as well. 
Yeah, just before Saad asks you a couple more questions, we we were talking a little bit about the um, acceptance of a child in terms of reassurance. And one of the ways that we were talking about is that the child retains the surname of the biological parents. Do you think that is a way that an adopted child needs more reassurance from their parents to build an identity for themselves and feel accepted? Yes, I think that there is um, something to say about, you know, names and naming your child. So mm. when I was born and adopted, my adoptive parents named me. So I have the same last name as my adoptive parents, um, and so does my brother. Um, I know people where that is not the case. Um, and it can, it can be confusing, but I think as long as parents are open with their adoptive children yeah. and, are, and are honest about the process, um, it doesn't really matter what your name is, you know, and then once you get to be an adult, you can change your name. Yeah. So um, sometimes, you know, children want to keep that biological identity and they want to keep their their biological name um, if that's what they were named initially uh, because they don't want to forget their past or maybe it wasn't a bad experience. You know, they were they were adopted for a reason and it wasn't a reason that uh, that would be negatively, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. So. Again, it depends on the child. Yeah. Um, just before Saad comes in, I mean, another point that Saad made earlier in his introduction to this was that the naming of uh, a child is still a, a tiny aspect of everything that's related to adoption because there's so much more that relates to it. Uh, it's not just about the name. There's, you know, you're, you're raising a family, you're giving them an opportunity then to have their own family and, and obviously progress in that way as well. The name, again, is a very small aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, hi, Madeline, how are you? Hi, how are you? Yes. Uh, Madeline, my question to you is, did you know you were adopted from the beginning or did you find out about this later and how did you re- react about it? Um, I was aware, okay, so I was adopted at about two yes. days old. I was, at two days, I was in the care of my adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was never hidden from me. Uh, when I was old enough to understand what that meant, I was, you know, told and, and it was talked about and it was never, you know, it was never something that was taboo in my family. My, both sides of my extended family know that I'm adopted and I know and I've always known. Yeah. Um, and I have other mm-hmm. family members who are also adopted into my family. So it's something that we can relate with and relate to. Um, but, you know, it's, it was never something that I had to get over, I guess. Uh, it was just normal from the beginning yes. and it always will be. <laughs> yes. You know, you, you were two days old when you were adopted, but did you ever try to find out who your birth parents were? And if yes, how and why? So I have never gone out of my way by myself mm-hmm. to make contact. Um, when I was about 16, my adoptive mother kind of, you know, sat with me and talked about it and showed me some pictures and things like that. Um, but I've never reached out to my biological family. And quite honestly, I don't think I ever would because I know that my adoptive mom and dad, that that's my family. And, you know, there is something to say about curiosity, but at the same time, I don't know that person. My biological mother is a stranger to me. So, you know, that's, if I was ever reached out to, I would definitely, you know, I wouldn't say no to meeting my biological family, but I don't think it's something that I would seek out myself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those people who want to adopt someone, 
Is there any in the school information or anything you can tell them about uh, about adoption? Um, yes, we need people to adopt children. Um, we have several hundred thousand children in the United States that are foster children right now. Um, and it's just something that we need to do. Uh, it needs to be less expensive. It needs to be more accessible. But we also need to, um, you know, educate more and advocate more for adoption and, and let people know that that's an option as a way to start a family. Um, you know, as far as any reason why a woman wouldn't be able to have a child, maybe infertility or mm. whatever's going on, you know, that's a very viable option for a lot of people, um, especially inside the LGBTQ community. We need people to adopt children. Um, and it's, it's not anything that you should ever feel ashamed about, uh, not something you should hide from your child. You know, it, it, it can be a very beautiful process. And in the long run, you know, you're giving a child a family and a home that that needs one mm -hmm. and so you know I, I think adoption should be more of an accessible choice for people to start family so Madeline sorry uh, you, you just mentioned it should be less expensive and more accessible but what does that mean is it really expensive to adopt someone um, yes in the United States actually um, it is quite expensive to adopt someone between court fees and um, you know filing paperwork and things like that it's a very rigorous process Okay. Um, and it can cost several several thousand dollars in the United States. Mm -hmm. Slightly different here in the UK. You wouldn't have to have those sort of intense um, law fee fees, which we know that's a big difference between here and in the UK. Um, I think we read out a statistic earlier today that there are about 3,000 children who are still waiting to be adopted, uh, which is a very small number compared to your several... Did you say 700,000 uh, children still to be adopted in the United States? Yes. Yeah. Um, in the foster care system in the United States right now, we have over 500,000 children in the foster yeah. care system nationwide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and if we could encourage people to adopt and even foster, um, that would help that and give opportunities for many children, young adults, to be able to have, well, I guess, uh, an identity and, uh, and a great future as well, although they may still be able to if they're looked after by the state, but it'll give them a much more of a loving home. So it sounds like you've had a brilliant experience, and I, I love the fact that you're also a political activist as well, and also a candidate for the House of Districts. Um, how's that going? Yes, it's going really well. Um, we are just getting people registered to vote. Early voting in our state started today, so voting's happening in the United States. Um, and we're all we're just waiting for November 9th to see what the elections turn out to be. But I'm, I'm positive and I'm motivated and I'm excited to see how it will go. Well, great. We wish you the best of luck. Um, well done. Thank you very much for your time today, Madeline. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Very kind of you. OK, so that was uh, Madeline Ryan-Smith, who is an adopter. Did a child uh, from the age of two days, and um, and uh, great insight into that conversation. So I thought it was uh, really inspiring the way she has come together, and she's doing brilliant, and and so received so much love within her family. It's great. Yeah, that's the thing I was telling you also before. Mm. It's the thing you you're providing them, and everything with it. It isn't. It, it's the, that small section with the family name. If you mm. take that out. You're providing them a life which they can go ahead and live with. Mm. That's really important also for them. And adoption itself is a beautiful thing 
but yeah. there are obviously some cases which do raise up but there that's unfortunate which uh, which when these kind of situations do turn up and that this is what is giving adoption mm-hmm. a bad name also sometimes yeah and, and and us talking about it today and speaking with our guests um that we'll be speaking to again we'll be talking to Dave Brown later in uh, in about 6 minutes time um and get his views on this subject as well but so what is the adoption process then so do you want to just explain that process then so uh, what is adoption mm, adoption yeah. is a way of providing a new family for children who cannot be brought up by their own parents adoption is a legal process in which all parental responsibility is transferred to the adopters once a adoption order has been granted it cannot be reversed except in extreme rare circumstances an adopted child loses all legal ties with their birth parents and becomes a full member of the new family usually taken the family's name that's the law of the UK okay. uh, islamic teaching we already discussed a bit yeah. already and what is adoption if you go ahead with it, the adoption of children act was established in 1926 since then almost every decade has witnessed new laws for increased regulation in the UK boys girls brothers and sisters all need a forever home yeah. Occ- occasionally they are babies or infants often they are older children some children are harder to place uh, into adoption and foster due to some following regions I'll just mention a few yeah. so they are sometimes older than the um, age of 4 mm-hmm. they are dis- uh, have some dis- disability be it be mild or severe and they because uh, they belong to a minority ethnicity group and they are part of a larger sibling group also that also puts sometimes people off uh, they were thinking of adopting one child and when if they're coming as a package they also step back from it and um so when they do step back from it but obviously islam um adoption is encouraged yes. in, in in so many ways i mean if you remember the history of our religion for when it started most people know the story of zaid Um, Zayed, yeah, he was a freed slave, wasn't he, at that time when the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace Salah and Salah. blessings of Allah be upon him, adopted him. Yes, and and also uh, just following that story forward, he gave his gave uh, the daughter of his aunt to Zayd as well uh, for marriage, and who was of uh, full-blooded Arab lady and intensely proud of her ancestry and social status. and that also describes the importance as well where you had Hazrat Zaid was a slave yes. but still he offered someone of very high value in terms of ancestry and social status to to uh, Hazrat Zaid indeed so that's that's the thing the beauty of islam they doesn't look at uh, what's called status or anything the first thing what islam says look at the spirituality mm. then the rest comes in beauty wealth lineage all that is after that but first thing spirituality always look for someone you're getting married to that they are the spiritual or not yeah. the rest the they they fade away beauty fades away also wealth does fade away also and you know lineage doesn't matter at this much so so what are the guidance that islam gives Uh, on how adopted children should be treated so what islam says mm. and uh, i'll mention a few what's it called narrations yep. also 
Yeah, so um, what Islam says is if you know the parent's name, he or she has uh, will be addressed with the, with that name. So you can't call her your son. You have to call her by. Um, we didn't call Zad bin Muhammad, right? Zad's son of Muhammad. We call him Zad bin Harsa, so son of Harsa. Okay. So he, he, they have to be um, named by what's called their fathers or and and the lineage, and that's the one main aspect of it. And in inheritance, especially, that's that's where the issue also um, arises sometimes. Okay, when someone dies, let's say I've adopted someone. And I did. I didn't put my will in, hmm. saying uh, this X amount will be paid to my adoptees, and he passes away. And what first happens? You, your inheritance. That's the issue which turns up. So what Islam says: one um, one third. So thirty three percent of your um, what's it called inheritance you can donate to someone um, who is less um, less um, able or just for charity basis. You can give to someone else, so that amount you can give to your adoptees also, unless you have given something before you have passed away to them, and you told them, okay, this X amount is coming to you, and but you can't give him everything. Also, you have to be just in your system. Also, you, if you're giving him, let's say, one car, then you have to give the rest also. Your your biological children also a car then, <laughs> in simple terms for for audience to understand. So you can't give everything to him, and if you passed away and you haven't put a will. In front of it, and they're like you haven't written down anything. Then thirty-three percent you can donate to anyone, so you can basically they it can be given to him also. Great. Okay, so that's uh, re- really clear, and and thank you for that. And if anybody wants any more specific information about that, and uh, you know, obviously you can dial, uh, call in, and and we've got an expert with us uh, no, <laughs> today in, in some, who, who knows all this. But obviously, with any of the subjects that we ever talk about on Voice of Islam, if there's something that you want to follow up with, um, and obviously cover a, a particular subject, by all means, write in, and we do that. We, you know, we don't always just cover the uh, things that are happening at the moment. Um, like 24-hour cha- news channels, we want to get into the depth of, of details as well. And so uh, what we will be doing is talking to our next guest um, who's joined us today, which is uh, David Brown. Uh, he's a writer and an adoptee, and I was really interested to learn from his point of view um, what he feels and his experiences of being an adoptee as well. So like to welcome David to the Drive Time Show and thank him for joining us today. Uh, I suppose it's morning for you, David, and it's afternoon for us here to, uh, here in the UK. Yes, it's uh, the sun is just coming up here. Oh, <laughs> so it's pretty early then uh, for you. Um, so I wanted to just um, ask you and ask you that do you think that identity as an adoptee it's quite a complex matter in one which is taken for granted by non-adoptees because, I mean, you'll be the yeah. right person to kind of answer that question, right? So in the uh, in the U.S., uh, I was born at a time when, um, uh, you know, single mothers who got pregnant could not keep their children yeah. and they were uh, forced into relinquishing on them. Um so when I was adopted, all that information about who who my mother was, who my family was, uh, all it got erased uh, with my adoption once my adoption became legal. 
Um, I don't think that that's something that non-adoptees really have to think about because they know where they came from. Yeah. But for us, but for me, the truth about my origins was a mystery mm. uh, for most of my life. And so I, I struggled to make sort of a connection to that, to adoption. But what I want to say is that um, there seems to be this narrative that, that babies are blank slates. In other words, um, we're told at a very young age that DNA and genetics don't really matter. And really what matters is love. Yeah. That if you just give a child. So I felt like, you know, I was told that there was no difference between an adopted and biological child, which was a little confusing. Um, but what my parents had hoped for was I would be an extension of them, that I would um, probably, you know, look like them, um, have the same aptitudes as them, and they didn't really see me as a separate person. So I'm, I'm from another, you know, I, was, I had belonged to this other family. Um, I'm yeah. sorry, did, I, did you want to interject? No, no, I'm just, I'm just listening intensely uh, to okay. what you're saying, and thank you for sharing your story with us. Oh, sure. So my teen years, and as you know, like teenage years are really, you know, turbulent, can be very turbulent. And I didn't, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I looked exactly like my birth father. And I think as I started to get older, you know, my parents realized, you know, it became very apparent that yeah. I wasn't their child. So, and I began to notice how my friends looked like their parents and they had some of the same abilities, yeah. which I didn't have any of the same abilities as my parents. And so I felt very, um, you know, alone. Like I, I, I was very confused and I really didn't. So I had what, what I had to learn to do was mimic, mimic, you know, my parents, try and act like them, try and have the same, um, you know, aptitudes like math and engineering yeah. and, and it, and it didn't really work. And um, so, what were the things that you were into then? I mean, if it wasn't similar to your parents, did you have your own thing that you were like you enjoyed doing? I did. Um, I actually so I I was musically inclined. My parents weren't, but they yeah. gave me. Um, uh, they taught me. Well, they they paid for piano lessons for me. And I did very well at, at music, and I also uh, explored painting, which I did very well yeah. at. Um, later on, after I did this DNA test, I found out that you know both my parents were musical, and, and my father had been this wow. artist. That's amazing. Uh, so you had those kind of traits um, that were within you. Um, so I wanted to ask you about some of the things that the whole adoption process that we as a society are unaware of? Well, so first off, my answers are kind of specific to the U.S. Uh, I was able to reach out to some people in the U.K. about the process there, which is different, mm -hmm. a little different from here. But adoption, adoptive parents need to realize that adoption is a lifelong event for the adoptee. So it's it's not really a one-time event where where you go to the courthouse and everyone poses for pictures. Um, 
and that's the end of it. It changes everything forever in ways that we really don't realize much later in life. Um, but as far as the UK, what I what I learned was uh, that in the UK, adoption process isn't free. There, are, uh, the agencies are private companies, and they charge a fee called the interagency fee, which is paid by the government. And I guess there's a, a scale on the on the government website. Um, adoption agencies. And in the industry in general, they do not like to paint, they do not like to show uh, the downside of adoption. Um, they tend to portray, you know, it's a adoption is a happy experience for everyone. Um, and so it's, so I don't think that the parents, parents are prepared for the, when the, you know, the trauma. So when you take a baby away from their mother, there's going to be trauma. And, and then to be told that, that, you know, you can never find anything out about them. It's a secret. So, um, you know, many, many children are taken from adoption, never, never had any harm. Um, but there are a huge number that are taken into yeah. care uh, that do, do have experienced harm. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, when I mentioned that, um, adoptions are forever. Uh, there's a large number of, of adoptions that end up in disruption. Like for one reason or another, the the adoption falls through. Mm. So, David, just before Saad asks you one more question now about your sure. own life. Now, are, are you married? Do you have children? I'm married. I don't have children. Yeah. No, I um, I did not. Uh, well, for one reason, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know about my medical history. I didn't know yeah. what what I could uh, okay. pass down. So, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So, David, you know, um, adoption um, truly benefits those who are in need of an adoption. How, how can this even happen? Like, how can adoption truly benefit those people who need this adoption process? Well, that's that's interesting because there will there will always be a need for. Adoption on some level, but in the United States, we have a history of of going to world, you know, places around the world where there are conflicts and wars, mm -hmm. and taking those children and bringing them back to the United States. Um, you know, no no attempt is being made to find the parents or their families, and so they're coming here and they're and they're um, you know being in in incorporated into the American life. Um, you know, now with the uh, recent reversal, I don't know if you know anything about our Supreme Court, but they reversed uh, something called Roe, Roe v. Wade, which means, um, and they did so because they felt like the supply of infants uh, was not meeting the demand of adoptable or adoptive parents. So one reason to do that is cut off access to abortion. So, um, so there will always be need for children, but there seems to be this artificial means of creating these kids that need yeah. parents. Um, yeah. One way of dealing with this is guardianship. Okay. Um, um, we're 
you know, a child's identity, identity wouldn't have to be changed, wouldn't yeah. have to be erased. Um, so this is a very interesting point you make there, David. I mean, I'd like to talk to you a lot longer, but this thing about okay. uh, guardianship and adoption, about changing the name, etc. This is one of the mm -hmm. differences that um, the religion Islam has and, and uh, stresses upon is that when you do adopt or you become the guardian of, of a child, you never change the name. You keep the name the same so they oh. can always keep their identity. That has been in tradition over 1,400 years ago since the beginning of Islam. So they kind of would... I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So that that is something that I thought I'd just share with you. And it's a discussion we had earlier with, with Madeline uh, Ryan-Smith, who we spoke to earlier as well, who kind of understood that concept. But you've really hammered it down to your own personal conclusion, realizing yeah. that having someone to retain their name is something that would have really helped you as well. So look, we're, we're, David, we're, we're rushed for time uh, today, but okay, we really sorry. do. Okay. No, no, it's fine. Really enjoy talking to you and your story and everything else. Can can I just uh, mention one more please thing? Please go ahead, um, yes. Sorry, really quickly. No, no, please go ahead. Uh, so, because uh, America, um, the Christian church is very involved in adoption in this country. And so the whole thing is that they feel like uh, God had intended for them to have another child. Oh, okay. And so that way they incorporate the child into, uh, you know, the house and the religion. And yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned that about the, the guardianship or you yeah. were talking about it. Yeah, I mean, if you want to, I've said it earlier in, in the show as well, if anyone wants to get further information uh, about this subject, about some of the other subjects we, we do, you can always uh, write in to us as well. And uh, you can find a link on our website as well on voiceofislam.co.uk and sure someone will contact you. So, David, really appreciate that last point you made. Uh, it is a, val a very valid point because we were talking a little bit about this, the, the sort of situation and things that happen in Ireland as well um, in, in, the, in the history of, of this of this scenario. And okay, so we'll leave it there. Thanks a lot, David, for your time. Really appreciate it. All right, and um, thank you for having me. You're most welcome. So, sir, that was um, David Brown, a writer and an adoptee. And it's good to get his perspective yes. as well. And it's a, uh, and you know, you said earlier that sometimes that you don't always get it right first time, but I guess from the experiences that we know, there's a lot more good, and you get the odd, uh, not as much where it doesn't always turn out right. Yes. So you know, if you look at a bigger picture of adoption, right, it's a beautiful thing. Okay, we have this small amount of cases. We have them in every single um, profession or even that. But adoption at itself, we should, we should Islam encourages it because this is the way to, you can reform the society and those who have been neglected for any reason, they can function and be inter inter interrogated, uh, sorry, interrogated inside the society again yeah integrated so, integrated yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry yeah no Thank no <laughs> that's, that's the German thing which comes up sometimes no I know because obviously English is not your first language it's my fourth language fourth language <laughs> I know and then I think people should recognise that and I do as well and I think it's amazing that you speak four languages fluently and I only speak like one and I understand another one quite well. So <laughs> look, we'll, we'll we'll leave it we'll leave it there. I mean, we've we've tried to cover this subject, but in, in conclusion, I just want to say that the truth remains that there aren't many children in the UK who are waiting to be adopted and giving 
a child a home and a place to call their own, a family or parents and siblings will complete not only their life, but also will complete yours, which you said eloquently at the beginning. And our beloved Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, loved children and was a great champion of orphans. And it says in the Holy Quran, uh, chapter 2, verse 221, I think I said this earlier as well, that, and they asked thee concerning the orphans, say, Promotion of their welfare is an act of great goodness. There is no harm in your living together with them, for they are your brethren, and Allah will know him who seeks to promote their welfare and also him who seeks to do them harm. And this again proves the fact that anyone who provides care and love towards a child from God Almighty has a promised reward for them and for their good deeds clearly showing how islam is not only supports but promotes adoption and we'll leave that leave it there side we'll take a short break and then we'll get straight into our next subject as well thank you for listening to us and join us back after this short break thank you a new station the voice of islam with live discussions religion and culture understand the true teachings of islam with the voice of Islam. Al-Muhaymin. The protector, the one who guards all from danger. He sends down the angels with revelation by his command on whomsoever of his servants he pleases, saying, warn people that there is no God but I so take me alone for your protector. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back and thank you very much uh, for staying with us. Yes, you probably noticed we finished the hour a little bit sooner than we normally would, but this is a topic that we wanted to cover and give uh, sufficient time to, and this is our next subject we're talking about, is the liberation psychology, and it's tackling a mental health crisis in a, in a different way way and we just wanted to um, get onto the subject as soon as possible and we've got a plethora of guests uh, in this next uh, program we'll be talking to Dr Evan Augusti who's a black liberation psychologist with a PhD in clinical forensic psychology and we'll be talking to Sona Ashim who's also a clinical psychologist also a parrot and speaker as well and James Barnes a psychotherapist and uh, Wilma uh, Eagle who is a psychologist and a creator of the Dandelion Hub interesting to learn a lot more about that and then lastly we'll be talking to Araya Baker who's a council educator and a suicidologist and a policy analyst so it'd be great to talk about but so I wanted to start this subject with a verse of the Holy Quran as well yes. uh, because I think it kind of sets this scene this this next uh, uh, hour or so with this topic indeed uh, so in chapter 10 verse 58 allah the almighty mentions says "O mankind there has indeed come to you an ex- extortion 
from your Lord and a cure for whatever disease there is in the heart and a guidance and a mercy to the believers. Hmm. Interesting you, you talk about that. So, so what does that actually mean? Because on one side that there's a disease in the heart, but also is there a cure? I mean, what what, what is it? Yes, so um, the Holy Prophet said this once yeah. that um, for every disease, Allah has created a cure mm. also, but it's for us to find it also, right? You have to search for it and find it. It's, it's there, but we have to obviously examine and find those cures. Where the, What's the root cause and how can we fix those issues? It can be medically, could be um, psychologically, could be socially, in any aspect. If you find a root cause and you find a cure for that root yeah. cause, and you can just take it out straight away from there. I mean, Unless just putting a band, sorry, just putting a bandage on it and just just ripping it off, and the issue is still there. Yeah, yeah, you know that makes sense because that's what I was kind of was going to say. Because a lot of um, people like us and like your yourself as well, who are also faith leaders, and they talk about social ills a lot, and they always have a remedy for social ills. Although you don't necessarily need a pill for it, you could. Fix the social ills in a different way through spirituality, etc., and obviously God Almighty. Indeed. Yeah. So I remember a you know a, you know if you have a pothole somewhere, yeah, and just fill it up and just leave it there, and it's because it's still a weak point there, right? If the car goes over again, those would, you, would the material you've put down in that pothole will come out again. Instead, if you fix that section of it, mm. that root cause of it that goes away and it keeps it smooth for a longer term. Interesting, and I, I I really like your analogy there. It's a lovely <laughs> just keep up in my mind. No, no, it's a lovely analogy uh, as well. And um, there are so many more which we go through, but I just wanted to just to develop this um, conversation a little bit more before we speak with Sarah Ashan, who's uh, waiting in the wings. But look, at the end of the day, we are not only in a cost of living crisis; we are also in a mental health crisis, and we seem to have lost track on how we can really deal with these issues and and what is the answer and the crisis has caused an explosion of demand that the mental health services are finding it difficult to deal with and we know so many people are now leaving this profession Uh, the amount of vacancies that are in the NHS all the way down from nurses to doctors is rising exponentially they're just moving away and there was a um, a report in The Guardian that says that 1.6 million people are on a waiting list, while another 8 million need help but can't even get on the list. Even children showing up at A&E in despair, uh, wanting to die. I mean, that in itself is very worrying. Yes. So is there a solution to tackling this particular mental health crisis? So this is what we're going to be talking about in the next part of the remaining show. And we're going to be talking to our guests who I spoke, uh, who I mentioned earlier. So uh, I did mention that we'll be speaking to our guest, uh, Sana Asham, who is on hold with us right now, who is a clinical psychologist, a poet, speaker, and an educator. Sana, welcome to The Drive Time Show, and thank you for joining us. Hi, You're welcome. Thank you. Hi. So I wanted to just ask you about your article in The Guardian's highlights of how society understanding of 
mental health issues locates the problem inside the person ignores the political the politics of their distress and basically is is it another reason because we always politicize mental health so much more and could you mm. elaborate on on that please and kind of explain what you mean by liberation psychology it's actually to be honest it's a new term for me sure yeah thank you so much for having me um you know liberation psychology is actually rooted in, in the 1980s it's actually quite an old practice yeah and it's birthed in in south america but what i think we can learn from these ideas is really what they were doing was understanding distress within the context of systems of oppression, right? Yeah. And what we have in the UK, and you know, in most of the Western world really, is a deeply embedded idea or ideology that distress is rooted in either a flawed biochemistry or inherited genetics um, or unhelpful thinking styles, all of which, you know, really place the problem and the blame within the individual. You know, it's saying that there is something wrong with you for feeling this suffering, however that shows up. And the way to fix it is fundamentally by fixing you, so either through medication, through therapy. And we know that this approach is failing us. It's not working. We have a whole host of um, disorders and diagnoses. The language that we use to talk about our distress uh, is becoming increasingly medicalized. And what it tends to do really is it obscures us from the systems around us, the environments, sometimes the relationships that are actually causing our suffering. And and really what what I think is fundamental to this approach is it normalizes our pain. It's not saying that having pain, however extreme that pain is, is a sickness or an illness. It's saying that your pain is actually probably an indicator of, of health in some ways, that you're feeling this in response to living in these conditions. Now, you know, in this cost of living crisis, we know that rates of suicidality and suicide are going up exponentially. We could, if we use this model, suggest that people were becoming more and more mentally ill. You know, we could say that this was a mental health problem or a mental health crisis. Or we could say this was a response to unsurvivable and unlivable conditions. Yeah, Uh, I I understand where you're coming from, and it does make sense to me. But where, Mm. how do you evidence something like this? Well, yeah, you know, I think this is a really this is a really tricky thing. Is that we live within um, professions and systems that are constantly looking to uphold or reaffirm knowledge through evidence bases, right? And and so we know that through the psychiatric system and most of the academic world, what we have is the constant reaffirmation of white Eurocentric knowledge and therefore an erasure of knowledge that is black and brown, knowledge that really looks to understanding our distress through the context of this lens of injustice, right? Actually, if we look actually even just specifically at clinical psychology, clinical psychology is it's, it's an 88% white profession. It sits on an evidence base based on what we call kind of unquote weird research, which means Western, educated, industrialized, and rich democratic participants in their research. Yeah. Right? That makes up 95% of their research, 
which is only 5% of the global population. Yeah, okay? very interesting. Now, this, yeah. this, this evidence base then goes on to, of course, inform, you know, NICE guidelines and the therapies that are rolled out across our country. So, of course, what do we end up having? We end up having Eurocentric individualistic therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, which place the problem within an individual's thinking style and often not only obscure alternative knowledges, you know, black and brown knowledge, but also it obscures a spiritual understanding to distress too. So it's very interesting you, know. you mentioned the word spiritual because that's sure. kind of a, a lot of what I, when I said to Saad earlier in my kind of introduction, a lot of things that when they believe in God Almighty and they believe that God has the cure for everything, and mm. do you think a lot of this can potentially be solved through a faith-based believing in a creator, believing in God Almighty, to help help you feel better, understand better, and having a communion with God Almighty? You know, I think it's a really interesting question. I think that for all of us in in this pursuit to liberation, in this pursuit to a sense of love and justice and freedom, we all find a whole host of ways to survive in this world you know i think a fundamental part of transformation needs to be systemic transformation it needs to be active changing of these conditions now if you have a framework of a belief of islam or whatever you know spiritual framework that you have you know it, it doesn't i don't think um god says i will do everything stay there and be still you know we are here to be active in the pursuit of love and justice yeah. So, we, you know, it, it requires work and an active practice towards freedom. Yeah. We need to build the worlds that we envision and what practices in our day-to-day -day life align with that imagining of yeah. freedom. You know, that's important. And at the same time, I also, you know, want to uphold that for many folks, you know, having a religious framework, having a spiritual system for, for their survival is essential. And, and prayer and practices of prayer can be really, really important for people in kind of tending to this woundedness that comes about of living in these systems. Now, prayer is one of those practices. Yeah. Therapy as well, I'm not invalidating, I think it's an incredibly important and useful practice, as well as addressing these issues of where yeah. the actual root causes. Mm. It's, you know, how can we hold all of these things, you know, and centre all of these things at the same time? Yeah. Yes, we need to tend to our woundedness, but also address the root cause. Sure. And when you talk about address the root causes, and mm -hmm. I, 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 you may have to answer this after the news, but um, when you try and solve a root cause, do you solve the root cause out of fear or out of love? Because when we talk about faith, and believing in God Almighty. Mm. God Almighty always talks about love, peace, and tranquility, etc. But actually, sometimes things are controlled through fear as well. And although you build some boundaries around, is that also part of this kind of subject as well when we talk about a liberation psychology? Is it out of fear or is it out of love or can it only be out of love as a solution? Sure. Yeah, I love this question. So thank you so much for asking it. I think that love is at the centre of liberation. I find it helpful to fall back on Bell Hooks' definitions of love, where she talks about love as an action, mm. you know, as a choice that we that we really have to enact. And so therefore, the question is, how are you acting and embodying love? Now, an action and an embodiment of love towards freedom is thinking about how we can dismantle these systems that are anti-life, in our day-to-day, -day, 
you know, and I think sometimes we become quite overwhelmed by how, well, how can we, you know, abolish these systems of racism? Of course, you know, it's a, it's a, a deeply embedded institutional yeah. um, operation of harm. But in our day to day, we have spheres yeah. of influence. How are we moving lovingly sure. to actively work towards that freedom? Sure. So, you know, so if you could just the, hold on um, one second while we do the news and I'll be back to you straight away. Thank you. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back and thank you for staying with us on this very interesting subject which I'm learning so much about. And in the break we were just talking a little bit about this kind of subject. And we we remember that proverb which says that it takes a village to raise a child. It kind of feeds into what we were talking about when we were having this wonderful conversation with Sana Asham who is holding on before the news. And welcome back um, Sana for staying with us. And uh, yeah, so we were asking that question, weren't we, about um, this whole topic of liberation psychology. And sure. yeah, you, you're still with us, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I mean, you, you were asking me about um, love and fear. Yes. And, you know, I really, I really also appreciated the quote you just shared because I think so much of. Um, what we've got used to doing is thinking that the only place that we can rely on in our extreme places of distress are these services, you know, that if we're in extreme pain, we need to be sent away to mental health services, to GPs, you know, who will tend to write a prescription for antidepressants. antidepressants. If we're lucky, we might get referred to therapy. Mm. Uh, but we know that these services are extremely under-resourced and they're also very medicalized. Now, in no way do I want to detract people from the value of what these services offer, but I think that we need to build a practice at the same time of being able to bear each other's distress, be able to show up for each other, when we're really, really in these situations of extreme despair, of misery, and feeling very wounded at living in these conditions. Now, I think part of why it's so hard for us to do that that we're not very practiced at being with our own pain, with our own misery. I think often when when we feel like very, very overwhelmed with sadness, you know, the tendency is, how can I distract myself from that, right? And the conditions of this world really support that. It's either, you know, you pick up your phone and you're scrolling till you're numb, you know, or maybe it's, it's watching the TV or the news for hours. Whatever it is, anything but feeling my pain. Yeah. And... What feels really important to emphasize here is to feel how it shows up in my body. You know, we've become so increasingly disconnected and disembodied. So I invite yep. people, really, when, when they're feeling yep. a sense of pain, to locate it. Well, how is that showing up in my body? Is that a tightness in the neck? Is that an aching in my chest? How can I, how can I meet that suffering with compassion and if we build the practice of meeting ourselves with compassion yeah. we deepen our capacity to be able to do that with other people yeah 
You know, I'd, I'd love to carry on talking to you, Sonic. I've got, I've got so oh. many questions to ask you, but we've got quite a number of guests that we need to get through in this hour. Yeah. I mean, we could take this conversation to sports, to um, having a good time with your friends and what you're lacking, some companionship and relationships. You could just go on and on and having the right relationships. But we might have to ask the producers to get you on on another show when we, when we pick up this... this uh, um, um, this topic again because um, it, it is something that I want to talk about a lot more especially when we talk about the government adopting and implementing this type of approach but I think it will be a long answer and just want to yeah. uh, thank you very much uh, for your time on this and I'm sure you know we'll get you back when we discuss a similar topic thank you very much for your time that's okay thank you so much I just want to leave people with one invitation Please do. which is you know, in these places of despair and misery, please don't think there's something wrong with you. You know, the invitation is to meet yourself with compassion and to build a practice about talking about what's causing your pain rather than blaming yourself for it. That's the invitation, you know. Um, uh, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's a lovely invitation. And I think if our listeners would... Uh, you know, want to learn more about that, I'm sure they can get in touch uh, with you as well or they can send us a message into the Voice of Islam studios and uh, we can pass on their details to you as well or we can save it for when we pick up this topic next time. Thank you again for your sure. time. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Uh, so, so it's a really interesting topic and Sana's really set the foundations for this whole subject and I kind of understand it a lot more but the Quran talks about this in a lot of detail doesn't it and in various verses where there is a cure for the suffering in various ways yes um, even when we were talking mm. to her uh, it's remembered a verse from Surah Nahal meaning the Surah of Bees yeah. and uh, it and it says there um there comes forth from their bellies a drink of varying hues. Therein is uh, a cure for the men. So, you know, when we have, when she was talking about it, and I was like, okay, they, there must be some other cures Allah has mentioned somewhere. Yeah, um, and with the honey, for example, we have this. Uh, I saw a documentary once. They, put, they gave bees different colored uh, Smarties type thing. Yeah, I think you must have yeah, seen yeah, it. Yeah, like and when and when they went, they took out the nectar from it, and when they went back and they laid it out, they they it in different colors, and that means you know there might be a different slight different um, properties inside that very thing they, they put it in. Uh, I don't know the name, honey. If you if you if you know the name, the yeah. bee um, beehive beehive thing when you went over the square, the square they put it in the nectars. Yeah, yeah. Um, in that they they have different properties basically what, what it's showing to everyone with the naked eye. Yeah. So if they if, if they're putting it into blue one, that means there is a different property to the red one. Yeah. So they're not mixing it up and putting it all to in a jumbled places. So it's on up, upon us right, to find it. research of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. You're exactly right. I mean, there was a program we did about uh, bees some time ago. We or we yes. discussed it or, or or similar that how the this whole thing with with the bees and the way they organise their honey and the way they do it is is amazing. Also, there's something in that documentary when a bee is not feeling very well, there is a distance that the bees um, take from that 
individual bee that's not doing very well until it cures itself. Mm -hmm. And it was an, a fascinating subject. But yeah, you, you, yeah go ahead. So, so the, the, um, that means we there are cures out there for um, some what's called um, illnesses we have. Mm. They are out, um, but it's upon us to find those um, cures for it. Yeah. We have to do research. And even as um, Sana mentioned, yeah. that there's, there's nothing wrong with us. That's, but you have to f allocate those uh, points. What happens? Does your shoulder um, tighten? Does your leg feel a bit shaky? Then you have to find out w what's causing those issues. Until you don't know what's causing them, we can't find the cure also at the same time. It's re you're right. So especially with eating, when, sometimes when you eat the wrong thing, yes, your stomach messes up. And you know what it was that you liked or didn't like. Now we know many people are gluten intolerance so you turn up to places and you say right is, is this gluten free or has to be lactose free also I, I, exactly right yeah because people do suffer we didn't know about these things you just spent your life having these uh, issues with your bowels but now you know how to control them and a lot of it also there's a new technology that's coming about microbiomes that are in your stomach all mm -hmm. the hundreds of billions of uh, different chemical reactions that are going on in your stomach that help feed the way the body feels but it's also down to what you eat and how you behave so all of this you're right with science again is finding these solutions yes but with the challenges that we face can a pill solve all of them and this is what we're realizing you don't have to right you don't There's have to all of them there there are even some issues which you can solve well, most of um issues is, is supplicating towards allah the almighty allah will provide you with those answers also so we have to put our trust also in allah the almighty to help us in the times of difficulties and despair yeah, so this this conversation about um, if we just follow through what Sanal was saying is that there's social ills, the other yes. problems related. We also talk about that you, if you're going through a lot of mental stress, you can also um, find confident, if you're a believer in God, in that way to help soothe your pain in that way. Um, but there are different types, right? But but that that's one as well. Indeed. So Allah is um, Rahmatullahil Alameen. He is um, what's called mercy for the whole mankind. And even what's his um, pro um, his Prophet Nabi Krim Sallallahu he's been um, allocated this very title also. The mercy for mankind. Mercy for, mercy for yeah. mankind. And uh, that's the thing. We have to follow and obey mm -hmm. the teachings of Allah the Almighty and his messenger yeah. and follow him and then we can get a say, connection with Allah the Almighty yeah. and ask for his help at every single stage and he will help us. So just on that point, we, you know you say he's the I mean, which is the mercy for mankind. We also say he's the gracious, God Almighty is most merciful most and gracious. Easy. What's the difference between that explanation? Because, for example, the way I see it, you may be able to correct me, if I put um, a seed in the ground, right, and out of that seed, an apple tree is made. Anyone can eat that apple tree. Anyone can eat the apples. It's for everyone, right? Yeah. But then if there was something that I did specifically to win a reward or a blessing from God, is mm -hmm. that the that is the graciousness of God? Yes. So when you said when you plant a uh, seed into the ground, that's it, uh, that's your work and if, uh, for helping out the mankind yeah. of Allah's creation. 
is being humans, being animals or insects, even the environment you're providing oxygen, they're taking in the CO2, photosynthesis, all that is happening. With that small seed you planted, mm. you're helping out a massive area. So Allah has given us, how big is the seed? It's, it's, it's a tiny seed, That's right? right yeah. If you plant it in and a massive beautiful thing comes out of it, uh, an apple tree as you mentioned, yeah. And that's helping out the whole mankind. And Allah obviously is always merciful and He is always all, all forgiving at the same time, Allah the Almighty. So we should always supplicate towards Him and ask for His help. And Allah will always provide you with the answer. And there are count, countless examples where Allah has helped people who were facing difficulties or were lost in some aspect. Right. And Allah does listen to you if you go towards Him. That's the main thing. I mean, that, that, I really liked your explanation then, and it kind of really does uh, give an idea from a perspective of someone who is strong in their faith. But there are many people, as we know, who who don't have that much faith, so um, it, it, it's easier in that way. But I just wanted to bring it back down into simple words that liberation psychology is a method aimed at analysing and transforming personal and social oppression and Martin Barrow a Salvadorian activist who founded the liberation psychology in the 1980s writes that it is a body of thought which aims to create a new psychological practice in order to transform both people and societies acknowledging their denied potential and you can quite easily feed that into exactly what you're talking about faith yes. as well as an individual relationship so anyway we'll, we'll dwell on that a little bit more Let, let's talk to our next guest who's been holding on as well which is james barnes who is a psychotherapist and we wanted to talk to james who who can also help us understand um the liberation psychology james welcome to the drive time show and thank you very much for joining us Thank you for having me on. Uh, you're most welcome. Um, James, you know, the topic that we're talking about today, liberation psychology, what is your understanding of that? You know, I was just hearing you speak a bit about it, and, and I mean, obviously you've been talking quite a bit about it already. I think that the key, the key thing in it for me, it's many things, but one of the key things in it for me is the, the, the sort of direct distinction, direct contrast with mm. the the individualistic kind of cognition-centric Western models that we have, particularly with mental health, um, how everything's defined highly um, individualistically, highly mentally. Yeah. And the social is, you know, often a, a, a secondary thought. And even when it's up there um, in, in the explanation, it still doesn't really take proper account of people's social conditions. And I think the, the, the liberation psychology the main meaning it has for me in the context of what I study yeah. is that it, it flips that on its head and it's it's socio-political first, the individual and their internal functioning second. And I think it's a much needed um, shift in focus that, yeah. you know, that, that, that we have no choice but to look at now if we weren't persuaded by the ideas that the fact is the individualistic model yeah. that we have in the West, particularly yeah. in mental health, has, has failed us um, mm. and we, we really need to focus on socio-political yeah. socio-political grounding and solutions yeah I mean w one of the questions that I didn't have time to to ask Sunna was about 
how you know how how can this be implemented by the UK government this whole thing because when we start looking at the pressures on the NHS there needs to be an alternative you can't yes. give everybody a pill because they've got um, some uh, biological chemical imbalance in their body which is blamed for their mental health so there has to be an alternative and what we're yes. hearing today is that the liberation of psychology is one of those and we're hearing it from different perspectives and although in the i think you probably mean the western world not what's other kind of practices that also look at this in more detail um do you, do you think that society is to blame for the growing mental health crisis then you know to a large extent yes i i, I don't think minds are simply mirrors of society but they are born out of it and they're always intimately and highly influenced by it um it's no surprise that the more fragmented fragmented society becomes the more fragmented our minds become the more individualistic society becomes the more isolated people are and it's no surprise that disadvantage and oppression are key indicators mm. of high rates of emotional and psychological distress Right. I mean, it's it's you, you can't entirely locate it in society as if we're not persons, too, but we're persons woven out of our society. So it's it's mm -hmm. it, it's inc it's incredibly important. And I mean, let's face it, there hasn't been per the, the usual individualistic psychiatric model. A lot of this is genetic, right? A lot, a lot of the reasons for people's quote-unquote mental disorders, the high genetic influence, that's, that's their kind of basis of their thinking. Yeah. But there has not been a gigantic, spontaneous change in people's genes and brains. That hasn't happened. That doesn't happen. What's happened is society has is progressively morphing into something that is very unsuitable for minds, for in, for. for for minds and selves and social groups, and that's what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, of course, it's massively complex yeah. at, at how society relates to the individual, but it's certainly more true to say that society is to blame than individuals are in terms of genes and all of that. It, it, it's, it's much more relevant to think in terms of what is society doing to us rather than what are our bodies doing to us. Yes. So, James, you know, I, I, I had a question which was in my mind. Um, is every social problem a psychological problem that needs to be treated with medication? Can you also uh, elaborate it for the audience? Yeah, no, I think I think the quite the opposite. Um, I think most psychological problems are first and foremost social ones, whether that's directly direct now in the present with the social conditions people live in or whether that's the the social worlds in which they were born and grew up in they are first and foremost social problems um the idea that they're individual psychological problems is a is a an assumption a bias a philosophy of, of the kinds of models that we use are used in britain and the u.s and are exported around the world they don't come from science or data they're, they're assumptions um, and, you know, with regards to medication, uh, psychiatric drugs, they can certainly be helpful in certain situations and for, for certain people. But we're not even talking about targeting psychology here. We're talking about targeting brain functioning. Mm. And there's never been any 
causal evidence that there's something malfunctioning in people's brains. I mean, this is ideology. Um, in many ways, we're in the grips of ideology. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to say medication is, is bad, because mm -hmm. it's not, but it's certainly overused. Um, and it's certainly used in a way that there are quite a few uh, mistruths spoken about. And I think we've seen recently with the debunking of the chemical imbalance myth, if you're aware of that, these, the, the science behind it is weak. And mm. often people are told stories that aren't quite right about what they do. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah. So in your opinion, which group of people are suffering the most due to this misunderstanding of treating a social problem as psychological one? Well, I mean, I, I, from my point of view, it's it's a ideological and structural thing. So we all suffer from it. Mm -hmm. But there's absolutely no doubt that oppressed people, marginalized people, poor people, they are the ones that suffer the greatest, um, much as they do uh, uh, suffer the greatest from political decisions. Um, they are the most likely to be medicated to, the most mm -hmm. likely to put on li lifelong medication, and most likely to have their rights taken away from them and, and put in psychiatric hospitals. Um, so social changes and political changes are often going to be much more beneficial, certainly in the long run. Yeah. But of course, that's not politically very convenient, and it's much more convenient to um, individualize, medicalize, pass on the buck yeah. to the next iteration. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I have a um, a question for you that I was want to ask, and you kind of started answering it. Are we seeing since, say, 2010, when we had a change of government, um, that this idea of mental health and suffering, where you talk about ideological and structure, um, do you think also it's related to institutional as well, as much as it is the mental health has, has got worse? Especially when you mention, you know, the poor people, the people who are held back, those people who, who hit the glass ceilings, those who are unable to aspire or move forward due to the yeah. lack of education, due to where they were born, which families they were born into. Do you yeah. think a lot of that plays into that as well? I do. I think there's a kind of paradox there that, it, it, on the one hand, a key problem is how much we're medicalizing and individualizing and reading in to people's experiences individual problems yeah. and on the other hand the, the very processes through which that comes about make people more distressed and suffer more especially the kinds of demographics that we're talking about so yeah. it's both true that people are suffering more and that our reactions to that suffering are not adequate or are even perpetuating it <clears throat> i think yeah no i, I kind of that's what my feeling after listening to you uh, answer Saad's questions is that when you mention about political decisions can clearly yeah. solve a lot of these problems if they did the levelling up in a true way through devolution and having money circulating and give the money I guess to local authorities for them to invest targetly to help those in the weakest link of the chain to raise their profile but because it's short term solutions need to be found it's not never enough time to have a long-term solution which these require yes hmm. that that is that is a problem and, and often you'll hear psychiatrists in particular making the argument that you know they'll, they'll use 
that they'll justify their wide use of psychiatric drugs on the basis that there isn't much of another option. And in, and in one sense, that's true, that there isn't much other support available. And to take away the psychiatric drugs, which do help in some way for some people, is not an option either. But that, it, it, you know, it's feeding into this whole, it's whole, this whole problem, the short-term thinking. And it's exactly that. I think, Wow. Yeah. Just uh, I, there's just another hundred questions that have just come into my head, which we don't have time to talk about because we did a program a couple of weeks ago about legalising um, cannabis because people yeah. are choosing cannabis as a solution to their mental health problems. Which again, that's they're not being given an alternative solution right. as to what we're talking about today. Although there'll be money made on that drug, also money made on the drugs that are given to fix the imbalances with the pill. That's another subject. Right. I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with it, but it, you can see the can of worms and the paradox that we're in. So, yes. all right. Okay, all right. James, I really appreciate your time today and, and thank you for Absolutely. your input into this um, into this subject that we're covering today. Thank you. Sure, pleasure. Goodbye. You're most welcome. Bye for now. So just uh, so just before we bring on our next guest, uh, Dr. Evans, but I, I thought that was really key, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. many times we talk about it a lot, don't we? The solution doesn't always have to be um, something you have to eat as a pill. There is this other thing about social, how one, I guess, faith and religion and villages and communities help support one another to help them so much. And religion is a way of life, isn't it? Yes. Um, to, but this, sorry, I'm just going to say it's something in my mind also. Uh, Hanif, you know, when you have a headache, sometimes you take paracetamol or some other kind of medication just to ease it down, right? But there are two types of people there. One, who take the medication and relax with it. And that's the second type of people, which I am normally. I just go to sleep for a bit, for half an hour 45 minutes and the headache goes away so it's not always you have to take the medication to get a cure but there could be other ways you can find those um, cures itself because your body is fascinating it's in itself and being able to understand it that's the greatest thing so like for my headaches i've understood okay if i have a headache i don't need to take this medication i just have to sleep for a bit yeah. and I stay away from this medication because sometimes medication do have some side effects also, yeah. which I also mentioned, and they're scary at the same time. No, no, you're right. And also, if you keep taking it, when you need the medication it doesn't for work. medical... Yeah, exactly, but you need it to work. So so don't keep taking it. So when you do need it, and the doctors need to give you something for an operation, for something in an emergency, it's there. So let's talk to our next guest who's waiting for us, Dr. Evans Augusti. And thank you very much, uh, Doctor, for joining us today. And some background for Dr. Evans is the Black Liberation Psychologist with a PhD in clinical forensic psychology. Dr. Evans, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And just to offer a little bit of a um, an amendment there is my PhD is in clinical psychology and my specialty is in forensic psychology. Right, okay. So it's one of the nuances that people don't really care about, but I just don't No, no, I, I really appreciate that. So a PhD in, was that in, in clinical studies and... Clinical psychology, psych- exactly. Clinical psychology, yep. Okay, I'll make sure 
we get that correct uh, as we do your follow-up at the end of the of our discussion. Uh, so, Dr. Evans, please tell us about yourself, which you've already started doing, and about what liberation psychology truly means. Of course, right. So my name is uh, Dr. Evan August. Um, I'm an incoming assistant professor over at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And I take what's called, right, this liberation, this black liberation psychology approach. So for me in my work, that looks at the, the psychological consequences of, of structural anti-blackness. And when I say that, I mean, I'm looking at how the structures uh, within the U.S., outside of the U.S., have been formed from a place of oppression and the yeah. way that that shifts people's conceptions of identity, how they imagine their political futures, and how that impacts their community relations. Mm. Um, so that, that's a little bit about my work. I mean, amazing set of characteristics there, because a lot of it can probably go back to the slave trade as well. When you start looking at the way people's identity, the way they were abused and, and the way they were treated, kind of feels straight through that side of thing. And it really makes a lot, a lot of sense as well. I mean, you said that your work was from a black liberation psychology lens. Could you just elaborate on that? And is that something where I've just mentioned just now? Of course. So to take a little bit of the history chip, right? So liberation psychology proper was conceptualized by Ignacio Martin Barro around in the, uh, the 70s. He was a El Salvadoran social psychologist, right? And so he was thinking specifically about uh, the, the liberation of minds from psychological oppression, right? looking at the impact of colonialism throughout Latin America. Um, around the same time, uh, in the 1970s, uh, black psychology within the U.S. became formalized. Mm. Right? And so you had these kind of contemporary movements uh, going on. Now, uh, the reason I specify, and some other people specify black liberation psychology, is because we're taking those uh, black psychology approaches, which looks at some of the psychological, mental health, spiritual understandings in the global south, right, throughout uh, much of Africa, throughout the Caribbean, and using those, right, to shape political realities to promote psychological wellness. So uh, a key example, right, in the formation of the Association of Black Psychologists, uh, I believe that was uh, around the 19, uh, late 1960s, I want to say. Okay. Yeah, I could be wrong about that. Um, when they initially promoted their plan for how to shape mental health in the country, they actually borrowed from the Black Panthers 10-point plan. Right? Right. So a key connection there and how we're looking at how uh, black liberation movements are, are, are formulating and conceptualizing uh, their struggle and using that to shape mental health uh, within the field and then for communities as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned the Black Panthers. It's recently in Black History Month, I remember last year watching the documentary on the movement of the Black Panthers. And a lot of what you're saying and explaining is the way he spoke and what he spoke about was kind of resonates with me in that conversation. But um, Asad's got some questions he wants to ask you. So, Dr. Evan, you of course, know, of course. so what does liberation psychology aim to achieve when you said, you know, there are different movements in the 1970s? And then there was a UC um, in 1990 uh, for the black um, or, um, liberation psychology. So what do, what do you want to achieve with this? Right. So a lot of it um, in both movements, right, black psychology, liberation psychology, um, really look at uh, a lot of those revolutionary people who brought about the well-being 
of the community. So mm-hmm. both tied very strongly to the work of uh, France Fanon, for instance, right? His work in Algeria and how we can, through psychological intervention, but also community and revolutionary projects, not just shape the, the mind of people to uh, unlearn the, the oppressive identities and, and, and structures that have been put on them, but also to, to reshape their communities, right? So I look at somebody, um, we have an article coming out uh, in the next couple of months, okay. uh, Louis Mars. Louis Mars in Haiti was the, Haiti's first uh, psychiatrist. And I think his project is a perfect example of a liberation psychology in that not only did he come up with psychological tools that understood that Haitian voodoo wasn't this um, pathological deviated mindset, but rather a cultural production, um, he also restructured the entire mental health apparatus in the country to promote health. Right? So mm-hmm. it, it's that right there, right? Reshaping the, the individual psyche to move past right, and learn from those oppressive histories. And then once that's completed, also shaping the community and political structure for the best well-being of uh, everybody involved. So as Dr. Evan just mentioned regarding Haiti also, so do you think we need to implement liberation psychology in our countries? Uh, if so, why? I, I really do think so, because it, it's a, the, the exact example, right, is a lot of our, um, I don't want to speak so broadly, right? I, I'm coming from mm-hmm. the U.S. I know y'all coming from the U.K. Yes. Right? There was a lot of flawed um, logics about the mind, about the well-being of people that a lot of these country structures rest upon. Uh, mm-hmm. Many people would say within the American structure, right, the over-reliance on the, pers- uh, of the person as a, as a laborer, the, uh, the, the fear right, that people have of, of certain minoritized groups in the U.S., I'll say black and indigenous people specifically, right, that kind of uh, captures and arrests how we can develop as a community. So when I think about black psychology, when I think about black liberation psychology, it's helping people see the common humanity, mm. right? The, the, the shared spiritual experience that we have. Um, and the reason people put the black psychology, the black liberation psychology upon that mm-hmm. is because people will look at uh, those humanitarian projects that have come out of other movements and say, these have been insufficient. Right? You look at the, you might look at the French Enlightenment and they'll say like, okay, this was your humanitarian project and it still coexisted with rampant uh, enslavement of peoples. And so people will look at the humanitarian liberatory projects in a place like Haiti, in a place like Algeria, uh, in a place like uh, Oakland, right? mm-hmm. all these various places and say, these movements, these understandings are what we need to guide right? our, our movements and our communities. So I would say yes, 100%, we need to be implementing these in our countries. So thank you, Dr. Evan. You know, it was really great talking to you and the, the way you have explained it to the audience also today, I think hopefully had simplified for them also this liberation psychology for them in, in terms. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I mean, ha- thank you very much, uh, very much uh, for that conversation. I found it fascinating uh, what Dr. Evans um, had to talk about. And it was really interesting the way he's yes. brought in so many different parallels together i mean we've been through a uh, uh, quite a, a lot of this process as well in in the united kingdom where we've moved on from so many different situations where every october now for many years now we celebrate black history month and to to understand to to 
feel and appreciate and learn from everything that what people went through uh, during their challenging times in, in their history. Yes. So, Saad, I wanted to also ask you a question a little bit about the aspect of the psych the psychology uh, of someone who is a strong believer in God. Does could you could you make or extrapolate that having someone who does their prayers on a regular basis, it, not referring to just Islam, but referring to all of say the Abrahamic faiths, for example, when they spend time out and they practice their religion and they reconnect with their God. Do you think there is a a, a connection between this subject we're talking about? Uh, I believe, Hanif, yes, there is. And, you know, when you take out your time from your busy schedule and turn towards God itself in whatever f- shape or form you pray to Him, that's 10, 15 or 20 minutes or how long you pray, that's a, con- a disconnection with the world and there's a connection with Allah the Almighty. And you pray towards Him and understand, okay, now this is my time to relax and have a connection with Allah the Almighty. And that's uh, one way of putting it, where you put your mind at ease. Yeah, uh, and I would tend to agree with that. And that's kind of a lot of what we talk about, don't yes. we, on, when you, on Voice of Islam Radio. You just take mm. away all the work from the world and just put your mind at ease and you're just concentrating on one thing and trying to connect with your Creator. Yeah, That's the main thing, what, what it is. Sure. Uh, so l- let's talk to our next guest, Saad, who's waiting to speak to us as well. We've got uh, Wilmar Igle, and I hope I spelt the, pronounced the surname correctly, as a psychologist and the creator of the Dandelion Hub, which we mentioned earlier. Wanted quite interested in wanting to know what that was all about. So welcome to the Drive Time Show, uh, Wilmar. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, hello, everybody. Yeah. So um, this dandelioning hub, um, tell us a little bit about that as well, because I'm quite interested to know what that is. Well, uh, basically, it's a website with a database um, which can be used to register um, civil resistance actions. Yeah. It has been inspired by the Fridays for Future action mapper, like the Fridays for Future climate movement, which I had uh, um, contact with, and I felt there was a need to create a database um, for for not only one movement, but uh, for a movement of movements. <laughs> Interesting. And, and, and is that fact-checked as well? Must be quite difficult. Um, uh, what do you mean, like uh, to? So, what the movements stand for? Do you just check that they're? Because we've got things like extinction rebellion, and a lot of people say various things about that movement, which may be true, not true, and so I suppose you're constantly fact-checking everything. Um. Well, uh, you're right that uh, the the values of the Dandelion Hub are generic in that sense. They are, more, well, one could say they are progressive, like uh, our motto is that we are stand for science, people power, and a livable future. Um, and But uh, otherwise, we are rather open to the whole bunch of movements and values uh, which are out there. 
um, the idea is that by collecting the different actions and what's happening um, in one central place and visualize it also on, on a map, mm -hmm. um, we the movements become aware of each other. They see yeah. they're not a on their own. Maybe they're pulling not exactly in the same in the same direction, yeah. but uh, they are. They stand for societal change yeah. for the benefit of the many. And I think it is a, a, a they, they share a goal in that sense. Awesome. So, Boma, the question I have is: As a society, do you think that we are quickly to judge those who are generally struggling as having mental health issues? Because our topic today is liberation of psychology. So we, I want to come back a bit to the topic. Um, yes, I think so. I, um, of course, like in a everyday life, you don't have access to full of information. Okay. And a lot of decisions which we are making has to be based on heuristics. Like if you meet someone in the subway and he looks a little bit weird or is talking strangely, then you instantly instantly decide like to just keep your distance or stay away from this person because like it it, it she might bring trouble um but um there's also another phenomenon which is well known in psychology which is called the fundamental attribution error mm -hmm. uh, which a uh, is a, also a cognitive heuristic where people are quick to attribute a behavior to stable personality traits of a person, ignoring the situation which has caused it. So if you see somebody standing next to his uh, car and shouting wildly, uh, you assume maybe that this is an aggressive person, mm -hmm. but uh, maybe this person has been uh, was insulted or experienced some other kind of loss which, which could justify explain his reaction uh, before. So um, it's actually the situation yes. which is the major cause of this behavior, not the personality yes. traits of uh, the person. Wilma, you just started off my second question also. So my question, my second question was, does labeling social problems as mental health problems and burying away racial, religious, domestic and other damaging hatred and abuse? Well, a it's obvious that uh, people are also a product of a society, mm -hmm. and especially people in which belong to minorities um, experience more negative effects um, um, in society, which create um, pressure and also can cause mental illness like depression or anxiety, um, loneliness or whatever so um, maybe the situation of African Americans in uh, in the United States is a is a uh, very illustrative example mm -hmm. um, because they are um, according also to critical race theory theory, theory um, experiencing many disadvantages uh, starting from um, yeah yes so Voting rights to a um, financial opportunities to buy houses or whatever. Yes. So, Wilma, uh, the question is: So, you know, we have our generations of us ch uh, coming up, uh, our children, and um, will they benefit? 
from a liberation psychology approach? If so, uh, how will it be um, good for them? So sorry, well, just before important. you answer this question, we have imagine we have uh, we have also children listening. If you can also explain it to them at the same time, how the liberation psychology is good for them, and if it's uh, if it's good or bad, whatever your uh, opinion is. So if you can simplify it for them also, please, at the same time. Um, well, a liberation psychology tries to understand how also um, the society is important for your individual well-being mm -hmm. and um, society or so the government um, has a responsibility for providing the basics for children to thrive which is okay. health and education and an overall feeling of safety and if this is not provided, um, this can lead to all sorts of negative so, uh, psychological effects, okay. and, and can create, um, yeah, we can also like increase the risk for for mental illness, and also physical illness. Thank you, well, Mad, you know, it was great talking to you, and especially how you simplified it. Um, the last question for us and uh, hopefully for the audience and the children who are listening and and were thinking okay how could it help us this uh, liberation psychology if they're if they're hearing it for hearing it for the first time uh, it was great that the way you explained it for, for to them thank you so much you're welcome thank you for having me no problem awesome that was uh, really i found it really interesting yes it was a really interesting conversation and trying to understand everything that you were talking about was was great one, one of the questions that we want to just delve in before we end the show is that do you think that the UK should adopt the liberation psychology I mean I suppose that's a question that we should be answering now ourselves yes um, liberation oof, that's it's 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 hard uh, also the question but the the thing there are some things which medically it helps you mm. right and and there's some aspect that you can obviously find other cures for it also so it's hand in hand in my opinion right it should go if if you if you actually need medical attention you should seek it at the same time don't go okay i'm having this headache or this type of pain yeah. okay i'll see where what's causing it but actually getting a professional at the same time to help you out yeah so it's, I think, in my opinion, it should be hand in hand. I, I always believe that there's always never one way to solve a solution, right? Yes. There's always to look at alternatives because one may not be available. There's another one. I always find it's like um, on a motorway, you've got the fast lane, you've got the middle lane, and you've got the slow lane. And always it kind of uh, makes you realize and, and think that what's the best approach? Sometimes... Um, there's that phrase in it, steady always wins the race, yes. doesn't it? You know, if you sometimes rush, and I think everyone, every situation requires a different model, and I think whichever model you're on, you're on that, and that approach is to, to life also, and there's also something in the Holy Quran that kind of talks about this subject. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, so in the uh, chapter 65, yeah. verse 8, Allah the Almighty has mentioned regarding this, let him who has abundance of means spend out of his abundance, and let him who means of subsist, uh, subsistence are straightened, spent out of what Allah has given him. Allah 
burdens not any soul beyond that which He has given it. Allah will soon bring about ease after hardship. So, where Allah, this is this Allah is mentioning, Allah hasn't burdened anyone uh, beyond His capacity. So we should realize what our capacity is also at the same time. Yeah. And and I, exactly right, and, and also then if you feel that it's it's overwhelming you, then you can always ask, uh, taking this verse further, to to alleviate the additional stress that you're suffering from, uh, as well. Uh, the in, in the conversations that we've been having and the points that have been raised uh, with our guests and our also understanding of this subject, you you can also then understand that there is vast amounts of liberation psychology by looking at patients as humans that are fighting against society for freedom and not as for patients who need therapy. I mean, that's quite an interesting analogy there as well. And also understanding that when we look at the pandemic that everyone has gone through, the isolation, and many people then took to substance abuse, and it mainly caused a lot of pressure, especially of the individualism and capitalism. And so there's lots of different things that are at play here. And then when you look at how immigrant families are victims of colonial voices, and we've spoke about all of this, especially when we were speaking to... Dr. Evans as well that spoke a lot about this colonialism and a sense of identity. But there are different ways of being able to solve this problem, isn't it? Yes. Even, you know, our beloved Khalifa, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, yeah. may Allah be his helper, um, he has mentioned when asked about, you know, how to help children suffering from mental illness, um, as was stated regarding depression, um, as was said, First, you need to find out the underlying cause for their mental health problems. Those suffering should be taken to a psychiatrist by their relatives and they should be treated properly and fully, uh, full effort should be made to rid them of their pain. Furthermore, who states, see what time of the day they suffer is most acute. If it is in the morning at around 10 or 11, then they should go out for a walk at that time to go uh, to get some fresh air. Secondly, yeah. they should pray to Allah the Almighty and they should try to develop their willpower and determination. They should pray that Allah the Almighty brings them out of this phase. So medical care should be adopted and they should also pray. Mental health issues such as depression are an illness like any other and so they should be diagnosed and treated properly. No one should make fun of their suffering or take it lightly. Seek repentance from Allah the Almighty and do your five daily prayers that Allah removes these that Allah removes these difficulties. Wow, that that is very clear and very very well explained in, in yes. basic terms. You always need someone just to put a a very simple take on something so you can yep. actually follow it through properly. And we're very lucky that His Holiness, Hazrat Masood Ahmed, who is the worldwide head of our community in every situation, gives us advice on every aspect of our lives that we're going through today. Yes, you know, the way Hazur explains us mm. 
um, anything. He uh, he goes so such a simple level so that everyone, including myself, can understand. And if I'm able to understand, and hopefully most majority of the people are able to understand also what Hazu is saying. And yeah. you, you know when Hazu said, sorry, I'm cutting you. No, 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 go ahead, no, no. go ahead. You know, those sufferings should be taken to a psychiatrist by their relatives and it should be t- uh, should be treated properly and full effort should be uh, made to rid them from the pain. So it's, uh, even as we is m- mentioning here, you, you, sh- you shouldn't say, okay, oh, it's happening, no problem, no worries. You should at least, uh, you should go and get it diagnosed and find out what's, uh, what's causing it. And that's the main thing. And this can save many and many lives because what happens in, in our household, okay, the guy's feeling depressed or whatever is happening, we see, or it's, it's just the phase he's going through mm. right now. And yeah, if we get out of it, and unless we're not speaking to him or we're not talking to him, it, it we won't know what's happening. How, how much of that is cultural then? That aspect, because this is what our beloved Khalifa is talking about. Some of these cultural feelings that oh, he'll grow out of it, or she'll grow out of it, or it's just the phase they're going through. But actually, there might be some real issues there. Yes, and. Yeah, go ahead. So, you know, it, this um, is a lack of education mm. sometimes we have uh, uh, regarding these subjects. I, I know a person who was facing, um, what's called depression, and what everyone was saying, oh, why is he so quiet? I think, or oh, must have lost some money in in his uh, business, or must be, you know, some difficulties facing. But no one thought he's depressed because X and X and X is happening to him. And no one was like, okay, it's fine. It, this happens in your day-to-day life. You lose something, you gain something. But um, going to a psychiatrist and getting him checked out, they didn't go for that. And then afterwards, when they all found, oh, he's, he was going through depression, when the person himself went to a psychiatrist, then they found out, oh, he's going through this phase right now. Oh, this is happening to him. And then they took him seriously. And then they tried to help him out. That is a big issue, isn't it? Because and we spoke about this subject a lot on our show, haven't yes. we? About some of the disabilities that people suffer are not visible. There are um, issues with Asperger's, autism, dementia, and mental health. And you look at them; they sort of look, look fine to me. But actually, when you delve deeper and you talk to them, and you can see a lot of their expression faces, they they're not. And sometimes you hear stories of of people that you knew that was in a bad way that committed suicide. And you think, well, I only spoke to him or met him or knew someone who knew him mm-hmm. the other day. But, and then you didn't stop to think. And this is where we spoke about this social aspect of this subject that we're doing. It's, it, there's, a, there's a lot more to it. And I guess uh, we've got a few minutes left before the end of the show that kind of joins uh, Saad, the show that we were talking a little bit about in the first part of the programme today, in that when we adopt children who need adopting, there's a lot more, isn't it, just by understanding what it is that you're doing when you adopt that child. You're giving them a life, you're giving them a future, you're keeping their progeny alive, etc. There's a lot more, isn't there? Yes. So with adoption, if you're going, you know, it's wrapping up our show right now. Mm. So with adoption, it's always a beautiful thing that you're helping someone out. It's You have to, you're making someone who is a key member of society at the end of the day, right? So we should always try and help out people in any way or form and if you're adopting someone you're taking a 
massive responsibility at the same time it's upon the adoptee who's yeah. adopting someone it's not okay I've adopted someone and like and people say oh wow, he's doing such a great job he has adopted someone but he's not looking after him and he's not giving him the due time he needs and care he needs and then there's no then in my opinion there is no point of him of so called yeah. um being uh, being a, a adoptee and adopting those people unless he's willing to sacrifice the time the care the love they need and that's the most important thing. Yeah. family name it's not a, a a issue we should always talk about it is that we should always know them as um, by their family name because then they they know okay we came from there and they have a history where they came from brilliant i mean that that's a great summary and then just in conclusion of this topic that we we're talking in the second part of the hour i mean liberation psychology we've learned that it's extremely complex but also it's an interesting approach to tackle the mental health crisis that we're facing today in the world because we know there's insufficient resources to be able to treat everybody individually as well and also then to find out the true issue at hand and we must first and foremost find the root of the problem um and that's one of the lessons that we're learning today in this part of the show in which many people don't look at and they don't understand the embedded of the social um norms or the expectations and the ideas that people are having to go through as well so we also mentioned earlier didn't you aside about prayer it's one of the things that can be so helpful to bring comfort yes. to to people themselves and also to peace in your in yourself as well and then in islam um grants us i guess security and gives us the strength to uh, through faith and a sense of belonging and a purpose surely gives us um anyone unless the um the peace we find and we must remember that everyone faces hardship and grief throughout their lives and i just want to end as in this verse of uh, 94 uh, sorry chapter 94 verse 7 and 6 and it says god almighty assures us that once but twice surely there is an ease after hardship i and surely there is ease after hardship so on that we will end the show and just thank our producers Anum Mahmoud for everything that uh, they've been able to help us do the show and and thank you Saad for spending the last 2 hours with me. No problem Zakla. Here's news.